Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. To let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. So if you would turn there, chapter 17 is where we find ourselves this morning in a section that many scholars and commentators call the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. I'm calling this series in John 17 with Jesus Behind the Veil. And I have in mind the veil that separated the holy place of the temple from the most holy or the holy of holies, that place where the Ark of the Covenant at one time dwelt, the very throne of God, Jesus Christ, is communing with his Father in this section, a very intimate prayer, no doubt the most intimate and uh, holy prayer of any prayer in the Bible. This prayer is divided into three uh, main uh, parts. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Then Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then Jesus prays for all believers in verses 20 to 26. Now, we are currently in the second main part of this prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples, which covers verses 6 through 19. And as we said last week, at the heart of this prayer is Jesus' concern for his disciples. Uh, He's only hours from the cross, but it's obvious he's not concerned about himself at all. He's concerned about the men that the Father had given him, those that had followed him for three and a half years. His heart is burdened for them. Why? Because he knows in a short time, a few hours he was going to go to the cross, three days later uh, rise from the dead, and 40 days after that he would return to his father, turning the work of the kingdom, which he had begun completely over to them. Now he knows that once they go into the world to fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the good news, the gospel, to every person they came in contact with, the devil would declare war on them. The devil is the god of this world. So the devil his demons, and every unbeliever that they would come in contact with that was being that was living their lives under the devil's control, whether they realized it or not, would come against them. And so he's burdened for them, and he's praying for them, as we're going to see this morning. But this prayer uh, by Jesus for his disciples, uh, in verses 6 to 19, can be divided up this way. Now, you can divide it any way you want. As I was going over it and praying over it, you keep reading it, you keep praying, and God begins to cause things to emerge. Well, five words eventually jumped off the page that I felt this section, verses 6 to 19, was kind of built around. As we said last week, they're kind of like nails to hang your thoughts on. Uh, Five words, five nails to hang your thoughts on. It's easier to memorize five words than 15 verses. Okay? So just to throw that out there. But uh, last week, we saw, uh, let me give them to you, sorry. Uh, first of all, it's, uh, the first word is identification, verse 6. Secondly, revelation, verses 7 and 8. Thirdly, supplication, verses 9 through 13. Then separation, verses 14 to 16. And finally, sanctification, verses 17 to 19. So we looked at the first two last week. Let me just uh, uh, quickly recap. So identification, verse 6, Jesus said to his father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, here Jesus is identifying with his disciples in the sense of them belonging to him. 
belonging to him, as those who were given to him by the Father, those uh, chosen by the Father to be members of the body of Christ, the church, uh, those who belong to Jesus and have become one with him through saving faith. Remember last time we said that saving faith is a faith that commits itself to Christ. Head knowledge is important. That's where the gospel enters into our minds, through our ears, and possibly our eyes. Um, but we have to take it from our heads to our hearts in making a commitment to Christ. Uh, that's the difference between faith. Demons have faith. They believe in God and tremble. But they're not saved, obviously. The difference between having head knowledge, faith, like the uh, like a number of churchgoers, and then having saving faith is where you make a commitment to Christ. It's kind of like marriage. Remember we talked about that last week? Uh, you know, ident I identify with my wife and she with me. We've been married 43 years. I mean, I can't think of myself apart from her, really. I mean, we're one. And what made us one was we stood before God 43 years ago and we pledged our commitment to each other. We entered into the marriage covenant. Well, the everlasting covenant is when you enter, in, enter into with Christ, when you give him your heart, believe in him, and you make a commitment to him with your heart. Guys, listen. A person identifies with Jesus, not by, listen, going to church, but by being a part of his church. The true church of Jesus Christ is not something you can join. You can join any church on any corner in any town. But you can't join the true church, the real church of Jesus Christ. You have to be born into it, John 3. And again, you have to put your faith in Christ. When you do, you are born of God. You are a member of the body of Christ. Uh, John, uh, his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, that we become children of God when we believe in Christ and then receive him. The believing is with our head. The receiving of is into our heart through our commitment. And now we are considered children of God John opens up his Bible, or excuse me, his gospel to uh, tell us. Now, guys, as we said last time, saving faith starts with the right information. That's the gospel. And the gospel started with revelation. Revelation, that's verses 7 and 8. Jesus went on to pray, Now, Father, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Guys, when Jesus talked about the words that the Father had given him to give to his disciples, which were then supposed to give it to all those they came in contact with, he's talking about New Testament truth, primarily. And of course, in, with regard to New Testament truth, in that truth is the gospel, how a person gets saved, right? It, it's all, but the fact that Jesus received it from the Father, came to earth, and he gave it to his disciples. That's called revelation. Revelation. Revelation, as we said last time, is something that has to be made known to us by God. It is information that has to be divinely revealed. Why? Because it originates with God in heaven. We are stuck on earth. We are stuck in this physical realm. God is spirit, and the only way for a supernatural God, who is spirit, to get us information uh, down here on earth, we can't do it by employing anyone of a number of occult or mystic, mystical techniques, visualization, transcendental meditation, uh, assuming the lotus position, looking at your navel and going, um, 
None of that's going to allow you to poke a hole in the physical realm. We, this box we call the physical realm, climb out and find God. We've talked about that. The only way for us to know anything about the supernatural God, any way for us to get information from this God, is if God would come down. He would condescend, invade the box, and give us the information. It's called revelation. In the Old Testament, of course, God revealed bits and pieces of himself and his will for us through the Old Testament prophets and angels, visions, dreams. In these last days, he has revealed himself most fully through the incarnation. The greatest revelation is the incarnation, where God became man and dwelt among us, right? Where God became man, where God became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. Now, we covered all of this last week. If you weren't here, I think it's worth your while to go online and listen to it, because we, we really wanted to develop uh, this idea of revelation and how it uh, Christianity comes to be a revealed truth. It really uh, is something we ought to understand. So the first two words in this prayer that this prayer is built around is identification, verse 6, revelation, verses 7 and 8. That then brings us to the next part of Jesus' prayer for his disciples, what we'll call supplication, verses 9 to 13. Now, guys, before we look at these verses, let me take a minute to introduce the subject of Jesus as our intercessor, as our intercessor. Here in these verses, Jesus is praying for his disciples. In other words, he is interceding to his Father on their behalf. I need you to turn to Hebrews 7. The book of Hebrews is such a great book. I really encourage you to read it, study it. We did it number of years ago you can go online and listen to the, the teaching but in it basically um, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul I believe who wrote Hebrews is talking about the superiority of the new covenant with the old covenant the mediator of the old covenant was Moses not wrong Moses great guy look, look forward to meeting him someday hey Mo how will you know him I'll know him you'll know him Peter and and, and, you know, James and John knew him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Never met him. Oh, Moses and Elijah, look at that. We're going to ask me the other day, will we know each other in heaven? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you're going to know me as Phil? Well, we're all going to get new names. So Phil, is not. this was an earthly name. But we're all going to get new names. Jesus will name each one of us a new name. And we're going to know exactly who we were on the earth and so on. Um, but... To, Comparing the Old Covenant with the superiority of the New Covenant, the mediator of the New Covenant is Jesus, of course. But let's look at verse 23, Hebrews 7. Talking about the Old Covenant, also there were many priests in the Old Covenant because they were prevented by death from continuing. So they were human beings. They served as long as they could till they died and were replaced, right? The priests of the Old Covenant. Verse 24, but he, Jesus, because he continues forever, he rose from the dead never to die again, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, all the way to glory, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Right now, Jesus is in heaven praying for those who are his. You realize that? He's praying for you. I know he prays a lot for me. I need it. Our Jesus is our intercessor in heaven who is praying 
for us. And since he lives forever, as the writer says, he always lives to make intercession for us while we're here on the earth. Jesus is our high priest. And one of the responsibilities of the priest was to once a year go into, after making many sacrifices for the nation, to go into that second compartment behind the veil, which into the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, to go in there to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the sacrifice of the offering. Uh, Jesus Christ is our propitiation, right? 1 John 2, 1. That same, it's the same Greek word translated mercy seat in other places in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. His blood was sprinkled, uh, you know, that we might receive mercy for, for, from God and so on. But uh, Jesus Christ, one of the responsibilities of the priest back then, not just the high priest, but any priest in Israel's uh, history, a person would bring a sacrifice to the priest for their sins. The priests were offered on the brazen altar, which stood out. I'll just use the tabernacle. That was more basic and easier to understand. Uh, the priest would offer this sacrifice for sin, this animal, on the brazen altar. After the sacrifice was made for the person's sin, before the priest entered into the tabernacle proper, that first compartment, he first washed himself in the laver. What is a laver? Think of a large bird bath, kind of what it looked like. He would wash himself. Then he would go into that first compartment. And in the first compartment, uh, in between the two compartments, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or holy of holies. You walk in that first compartment. To the right, you had the table of showbread. To the left, you had the menorah. And right in front, right before the veil, was a golden altar called the altar of incense. There the priest would offer incense and pray for the people, the high priest would do this on Yom Kippur, pray for the nation, pray for the whole nation, right? Jesus Christ offered himself on Calvary's cross. His blood made atonement for us. He then went into the, the temple in heaven, and now he is praying for us to the Father. What's he praying about? Well, first of all, he's praying positionally, prayer, positional prayers. What does that mean? Well, he is able to save to the uttermost, all the way to glory, those who have come to God through him. Look, when I receive Jesus, right, uh, practically speak, positionally, I'm perfect in God's eyes because I'm in Christ. I'm perfect, holy, blameless, and this and so on. Practically, not so much. And every time I blow it, the devil steps up to the throne of God and says, uh, Lord, uh, that servant of yours, that Phil guy, you know, he calls you, uh, you know, you call him your son, but look at what he just did. Look at the sin. He just, you should cast him out. You should not let him be your son. And Jesus steps forward as my intercessor. The Greek word is attorney for the defense. He says, Father, don't listen to that. His sins are all under my blood. I died for those sins. They're all taken care of. How can I go to hell if once I receive Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses me from all unrighteousness as my, my intercessor, my advocate, steps before the Father and is constantly pleading my case that I'm innocent because Jesus took care of all my sin. That's positional truth. 
What about practical truth? Does Jesus pray for us for practical, practical things? Of course he does. You say, well, what kind of things is he praying for us? What do you got? What do you got, right? I mean, whatever it is you need in any given situation, Jesus Christ is praying for that to the Father for you. Whether it be provision, protection, strength for something you're going through, guidance, whatever it is you need in the moment, Jesus Christ is constantly interceding to the Father on your behalf. Because, you know, everything that we are having trouble with, we'll say, any sin that's keeping us from really drawing closer to God, uh, he's praying about. Whether it be, you know, some, you know, uh, whether you are eating a diet that's not that good or whether you are uh, in bondage to something and whatever, cigarettes, alcohol, whatever it might be, he is praying for for the power and strength of God to be upon us. And that's how we grow, by the way. Uh, as time goes on, we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, being conformed every day by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ, right? Um, now, his ministry of intercession, for those who belong to him, didn't start when he uh, returned back to his Father in heaven. Uh, he practiced this while he was on the earth with those disciples he's praying for right now in John 17. Turn to Luke 22. I just want to read you verses 31 and 2. Of course, Simon, Peter Simon is the focus here. And I love Peter. Um, unfortunately, I relate more to Peter than Paul. That's a problem. But Peter felt that he was kind of stronger than the other disciples. You get what I mean, right? They might blow it, but not me. They might deny you, I never will. That kind of thing, right? And then the Lord basically says to him, verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, okay? Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. Now, i got to be honest with you. I don't really know what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. But listen, but I have prayed for you. Does it give you any comfort to know that Jesus Christ is praying for you this morning? That gives me comfort. That he's not against me for my sin. He is for me against sin. Because I belong to him. Peter, I have prayed for you. That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me. He's talking about after he denies him three times. After you return to me, strengthen your brethren. Look, blowing it and failing the Lord is not, a, is not a death sentence. If it drives us to Jesus in a closer walk, if we get off our face after we have fallen and confess our sin and draw closer to him, not only are we going to be forgiven, I mean, you know, he who confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive that person their sin, right? To cleanse them from all unrighteousness. But... As you learn to grow in your walk with him, you become a source of encouragement to others who are stumbling and having a hard time. But, but there's a classic passage on this subject that's found in the Gospels. You remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, this is a, um, a, a real account, obviously. It's a, it's a matter of history. It really happened. But there's a spiritual illustration behind it i want to bring out right so turn to john 6 let's look at verse 15 
Again, this is after Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a few scraps of food, right? And the people were so thrilled that he fed them with what? Um, five loaves and a couple of fish? You know, five barley crackers and a couple of, two, of sardines, basically. This, these movies, biblical movies, where Jesus, you know, multiplies the fish and they're pouring out of a basket, you know, three or four pound basses, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. This was a sack lunch, a little kid's share, okay? Uh, you know, five barley crackers and a couple of small pickled fish. Jesus multiplies and it, to feed a, a group of 5,000 men plus women and children, and they ate till they were all glutted, it says. The people were so excited that this could be their Messiah who would give them the greatest welfare state they can ever imagine. We have to work ever again. Just come to Jesus. Let him multiply food, you know? And they wanted to come and take him by force to be their king. John 6, 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the what? To the mountain by himself alone. Now, I know exactly where this mountain is. In fact, I've been up on this mountain. It's a mountain that overlooks the northern part of the Sea of Galilee called Mount Arabel. You can go online and look at it. It's the most incredible view. It's, I don't know how many feet high it is. It's got to be, oh, I think at least a couple thousand, maybe uh, feet more than you know, a couple thousand or more feet. You have this incredible view of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, it says, well, turn to Mark 6, and I'll fill in some of the details. And again, the, uh, Mark 6, starting with verse 45, again, the context is Jesus, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And uh, Mark 6, 45, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Beth Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. You can read the whole story on your own. Uh, guys, often in the Bible, mountains are symbolic for kingdoms. Read Daniel chapter 2. Remember the stone, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of at one point of a stone not cut with hands struck the image in its feet and the stone grew into a giant mountain that filled the earth. That's the kingdom of God on the earth, millennial kingdom, okay? In the Bible, though, mountains are often symbolic of kingdoms. And here, I believe the symbolism is the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus, it pictures Jesus on the earth, a little preview, though, of his heavenly ministry. He's on the mountain of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and he's watching. He's praying. The Bible says that this was a, a, a great storm, right, that the disciples found themselves going through as they were rowing, trying to obey the Lord. He said, go get into a boat, cross the sea, go to the other side, right? About maybe, I don't know, six, seven miles. And they struggled for about seven or eight hours. The wind was contrary. This was not a rainstorm with uh, lightning and rain. This was a windstorm common in that part of the world, especially around the Sea of Galilee, right? And um, they were struggling. They wanted to obey their Lord. They, he told them to cross. They wanted to, right? And so they're struggling, struggling to the point where they thought that we're goners. 
We're not going to make it. They were exhausted after six, seven hours of rowing, eight hours. You can imagine, right? Now, the Bible says in one of the Gospels, Jesus was watching them from the mountain. He was praying. He was watching. How could he see them? Because it was a full moon. It was Passover time, okay? The question is, did Jesus know the storm was coming, that he sent these guys basically into the storm? Of course he knew. Well, then why did he send them? Because God knows that we cannot live with all sunshine and blue skies as Christians. Our walk will not grow. It will not bloom. It will not blossom. It will not bear fruit. As the Arabs have a saying, all sunshine makes a desert. We need some storms. And you could, they went through a literal storm. We go through metaphorical or allegorical storms. There could be anything, a trials, tribulation, sickness, uh, any one of a number of things that we go through in life that God allows that we might draw closer to him, that we might learn more of his power in our lives, his, his love for us, right? And um, very important that you understand Jesus knew the storm was coming and sent these guys into it just like he knows everything that's going to happen to our lives. And it's interesting, he doesn't spare us from the storms of life. They're necessary. They're necessary. But I want you to know something. These storms in life, quote-unquote, whatever they form they take, um, are tests, divine tests, conducted under the direction of God. Jesus sent them into the storm. And also under the watchful eye of God. God allows us to go through the storms, but they are, only, uh, they are a controlled environment where God only allows us to go through the storm for so long and then says, enough, that's, that's what you needed to experience, and he delivers us. He brings us through it, and the storm is done, okay, till the next storm. One author put it well, he said, and I quote, there is a common fallacy that we often hold to, thinking that if I'm in the will of the Lord, if I'm obeying the commands of Jesus, my life should be a piece of cake. That I shouldn't have any problems. I shouldn't have any troubles. I should always have calm skies and with the wind at my back because, after all, I'm doing the will of the Lord. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's uh, think about Jesus. In doing the will of his Father there in Gethsemane, as he was facing the cross, you remember he, his prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And submitting to the will of the Father did not bring, listen, the wind at his back and a calm sea. It brought the cross. Oftentimes for us, the will of God is not an easy thing. And many times it's a very difficult thing where I face adversities uh, when I seek to do the will of God. So often I'm going against the tide, tide of the world, uh, when I seek to do the will of God. But Jesus is watching over us interceding and will come to our rescue when we have learned the lessons he wants to teach us and then he quotes first peter 5 10 a perfect verse for this very subject he said but may the god of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by christ jesus after you have suffered a while perfect establish strengthen and settle you end quote these are controlled tests guys god is in control Nothing ever happens in our lives that is not under the watchful care and sovereign will of our Heavenly Father. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose, right? Now, we have to be careful, though. As a teacher, I really need to qualify these things oftentimes. 
we must be careful not to make what is complex simplistic. What do I mean? What is complex? The will of God. The will of God is not often an easy thing to understand. Theologians have been wrestling with why God allows certain things, uh, you know, for centuries. I mean, if we're children of God, God loves us. Why does he allow us to go through certain things, right? Look, we live in a fallen world where evil people are constantly using force to get their way. Case in point, Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine is a country with a sizable Christian population. Many of those who have been killed have no doubt been Christians, some of them women and children. And so the obvious question is, if Jesus is up in heaven praying for Christians, why weren't Christians in Ukraine spared from this evil? I don't know the answer to that, except to say that all things are working together to bring about God's will and ultimately his plan of Jesus' return to establish his kingdom. This is an evil world, and the Bible says uh, that the closer we get to Jesus' return, evil men, evil women, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We have a ruling class we call them our public servants, who it seems are becoming more and more evil. They're deceived, and they're being deceived. They're deceiving and being deceived. God has got a plan for this world. Jesus is going to come back and fix it, and then he's going to destroy it and recreate it. How would you like to live in the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom? where Jesus will be ruling from Jerusalem visibly, literally, where there won't be any injustice, violence, murder, um, any sin. The Bible says where every man, every woman, will be able to sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid. They will take their swords and spears and beat them into, into plowshares and pruning hooks, and they will study war no more. That's the world that's coming. But right now we are living in a fallen world. Remember what Psalm 116 verse 15 says. Don't ever forget it. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Let me say it again. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Guys, for the Christian, death is not a punishment by God, but the ultimate liberation from a fallen evil world in a failing human body, amen, to an existence of absolute never-ending joy and health and eternal glory. An existence where there will be no more sorrow or pain or tears or crying or death. So please try to understand that the death of a Christian is not the result of a sadistic God in heaven who enjoys watching his people suffer and die on earth. It is the ultimate act of love and kindness where God says, okay, your time on earth is done. You have served me. Now you're coming home. I want you to be with me. I want to hold you. I want you to see my face. I want to wrap my arms around you, and I want you to know joy like you've never known joy because in his presence there is what? Fullness of joy, right? 
Can you imagine any one of those Christians? And I, I'm not being insensitive, guys. I know they have family on the earth that grieve their, their deaths. I'm, I'm not trying to be light with this. But can you imagine any one of those Christians who died in Ukraine at the hands of this invading army? Can you imagine any one of them when they close their eyes in this life and open them up in the life to come to see Jesus, come to see Jesus face looking at them? Can you imagine any one of them having said, oh, I, I don't want to get here yet. Come on, Lord. I, 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 you know, there was stuff I wanted to do still on the earth. Oh, my goodness. You know, we, we, down here people, why did a God of love let them die? What kind of a God is that? It's a great God who delivers his people at one point from this evil fallen world of death and sorrow and injustice and you name it, taking us to be with him at one point. We're in his presence. There is fullness of joy forevermore. Please try to keep that in mind. Next time the devil tries to whisper in your ear, how could a God of love allow people to die that know him? Because he loves them. Precious in his sight are when his saints on the earth die because they come into his presence and he just wraps his arms around us and we never know sorrow or pain or death ever again. Now, let's look at what Jesus was burdened about for his disciples that night, just hours before the cross. And it caused him to intercede for them to his father with such passion, such concern. Let me start with verse 9. And let me use this verse to, first of all, set this section up, but also to set the record straight, okay, with regard to a false doctrine that has been circulating in the church for some time. Let me read to you John 17, verse 9 once again. Listen to carefully what Jesus said. He's praying to his Father. Father, I pray for them, my disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. For those whom you have given me out of the world, for they are yours. Guys, notice Jesus didn't pray for the world. Why? Because the world is doomed. The world is terminal. The world is going to be judged and destroyed. Read the book of Revelation. The good news is God's going to remake it. He's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. More glorious and beautiful than we can ever imagine. But you notice that Jesus never once in the Gospels ever prayed for this fallen world system to be saved or to be spared from coming judgment. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean, please, I know you don't even have to say this, but let me do it anyways. Of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for and reach out to the lost people of this fallen world system that they might be saved. That's why Jesus came to the earth. Luke 19, verse 10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his whole mission, right? It's just that by Jesus saying to his father, I do not pray for the world. Listen, he is saying that we as his people aren't to waste our time thinking that we are going to, going to save the world and establish heaven on earth. Or in other words, that we're going to be used by God to bring God's kingdom to the earth. Visibly and literally, that is something that only Jesus can and will do at his second coming. 
to bring God's kingdom to the earth. As Bible scholar Hal Lindsey famously said years ago, God has not commanded us to clean up the fish pond. He's only commanded us to fish in it. Paraphrase, God hasn't commanded us to clean up the world. He's only commanded us to go into it and fish for souls for the kingdom. Now, I bring this up because we need to understand and call out a false doctrine that has infiltrated the church called dominion theology. Now, I, I would love to spend my time here as a teacher talking about the love of God, the grace of God, the kingdom of God that's coming. Unfortunately, though, I have been commanded by God as a teacher to teach the whole counsel of God, and much of God's word is warning us about false teaching and false teachers. So we have to touch on it, and John 17, 9 is a perfect place to touch on this. There's a false teaching that has come into the church. It is probably the fastest teaching, growing-wise, of many, if not every other teaching that's come into the church. It's called dominion theology. What is dominion theology? Well, first of all, uh, its, uh, its proponents base this uh, doctrinal view, this theology, on something God said in ver uh, Genesis 1, verse 28. Uh, that is the passage in which God grants humanity, and this was before the fall, so saved humanity, I guess, dominion over the earth. Let me read Genesis 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, there it is, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Guys, dominion theology and by the way, it also goes by a couple other labels, Kingdom Now and Reconstructionism. Kingdom Now and Reconstructionism. Kingdom Now is the belief that as Christians, we need to take over positions of power in government because then we can change laws and Christianize the world. In other words, bring the kingdom of God to the earth now, I guess, as opposed to waiting for Jesus to come and do it. In fact, they believe that he won't come until we do it. Bring the kingdom of God to the earth right now, kingdom now, all right? There's two main problems I see with this. Now, I'll just hit this and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll be done. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, okay? Two main problems with this view, okay, this theology. There's probably other things that stem from it that are, you know, um, problems as well. But these are the two main ones that I see, all right? First of all, this teaching takes our eyes off of the coming of Jesus and puts them onto the world. In direct violation of what Paul the Apostle said in Colossians 3, verse 2, he said, set your mind on things above and not on the things of this earth, right? Pastor Frank mentioned to me John 18, I think verse 35, 6, somewhere around there, where Jesus said, um, if this world was my kingdom, my servants would fight. Talking to Pilate, right? This world is not my kingdom. Yet there are those who believe it is that we are to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Again, this teaching takes our eyes off of the coming of Jesus and puts them onto the world. Listen, think about this. Suddenly, the church has its great commission changed from 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone so that they might be saved. Two, go into all the world and run for political office so that we can save the world. Satan has effectively used this doctrine to take many Christians away from their true mission. What's their true mission? The Great Commission. Go into all the world and share the good news with every person you come in contact with. Satan has effectively used this kingdom now, dominion theology, to take many Christians away from their true mission while redirecting their passion to politics where they constantly watch it on TV and become obsessed with working to get Christians elected to public office. Am I against that? I'd love to see Christians you know, win elections. But I don't look to them to bring God's kingdom to the earth. This is something that the devil is using quite effectively. In the process, because people are embracing it in the church, record numbers, Christians embracing this teaching, uh, it's effectively neutralizing their witness to the lost people of this world that Jesus, listen, was so passionate about reaching with the gospel. Again, Luke 19, verse 10. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Guys, we are in the last days. I think we all believe that. And the devil knows it too. And now more than ever, because we're in the last days, we must keep our eyes on the ball. What do I mean? We must keep, we must stay focused on what Jesus commanded us to do. Yes, go into all the world and save the lost, but also to watch diligently and vigilantly for his return. I could have read to you a number of quotes from different teachers. Some of them you would know very well who are saying that there was a time not long ago when churches were hungry to hear about the rapture, the second coming, the kingdom of God. They were, they were looking for teachers who would open the Bible and teach them these things. Not anymore. Not anymore. And I think dominion theology is a big reason why. One of the reasons. I'm, let me read to you. I don't have you turn to it because we won't have time. Uh, you can write down the reference, Okay. Yes, we, what Jesus commanded his church to do in these last days, yes, go out into the world and save the lost. That's true. Present the gospel. But also we must keep, he said, our eyes diligently watching for his return. That's all the way through the gospels. I'll give you one verse out of Revelation where Jesus gave a letter to the church of Ephesus. Revelation 3, verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. There was a few things they needed to repent for. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In Mark 13, starting around verse 32, well, starting with verse 32, Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Many believe he's talking about the rapture. Verse 33, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Verse 35, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. At the evening, uh, at, the, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch. And that brings us, guys, to the second main problem I see with dominion theology or 
kingdom now teaching. It renders prophecy not only obsolete, but reprehensible in the eyes of those who hold to this doctrine. I read one Christian some time back who holds to this, holds to this theology who said, anyone looking for the rapture is a coward looking to escape the earth instead of, wait, uh, work, instead of working right here, uh, right now on the earth to bring God's kingdom, the kingdom of God to this world, end quote. Most of you have heard of Rick Warren. Rick wrote uh, a lot of books that Christians really um, have read. Very popular author. Pastor for many years. I think he's retired now. But Rick said something I thought was interesting. I'll paraphrase it. He said that any church that teaches its people prophecy is teaching them a pie-in-the-sky theology which is counterproductive to doing the work of God right here on the earth right now. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, Many Christians in churches today aren't looking for the Lord's coming because they believe he won't come until they Christianize the world. It's called Kingdom Now or Reconstructionism. Christian Reconstructionism basically teaches that it is the church's responsibility to deconstruct this present evil age of man's rule upon the earth by reconstructing it. But how is that done? By voting Christians into office that will then pass righteous legislation that will transform the world into a Christian utopia. The author says it has its roots in liberal theology which has always seen the church's mission as that of saving humanity, but not from hell, but from poverty, injustice, famine, disease, and lately from things like global warming and other environmental issues that are damaging and destroying the earth. He said, this has become the fastest growing movement in the church today. That's why I wanted to spend a little time this morning talking about it. These are churches, the author goes on, that put down the teaching of prophecy, which they say causes people to have their quote-unquote heads in the clouds. They claim that these people, all of us who believe in the rapture, looking forward to it, right? They claim these people have an escapist mentality that, you know, they're waste, you know you're wasting your time studying prophecy and looking for the rapture, which they believe is a joke. They claim it's keeping you from the real mission of the church, which is social justice, reforming society, bringing mankind into unity and love with each other so that uh, Jesus can come back and inherit the kingdom the church has established here on the earth, end quote. Listen, folks, the, a lot of these people, probably all of them, but some are very zealous. These folks that embrace this teaching sincerely feel that for a Christian to believe that Jesus will come and rapture his church at a time when the world has become so bad and therefore ripe for God's judgment is to declare defeat. The thinking goes like this. There has never been a time in the history of the world that the world needs the church more than it needs us right now. It's that bad. God's getting ready to judge the world. We're running away. We're saying, get me out of here. Beam me up, God. I don't, I'm tired of this place. Oh, it sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? It's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. 
because God will never punish the righteous with the wicked, and before his judgment comes, he's going to evacuate his people off of the earth because we have received Christ. Oh, he's going to save a whole bunch of new folks during the tribulation period. But we have not been called to go through the tribulation period, I don't believe, I believe that with all my heart we haven't been called to go through the tribulation period. It depends on your theology, on your eschatology. Some believe the church will go through part of the great tribulation, most of it, all of it. They got Jesus coming back at, at the end of the seven years and we get raptured up to, into the air and come right back down. What's the point of the rapture? It's called the blessed hope. What kind of hope is that? I go through the entire tribulation period, and as Jesus is coming into the clouds, I go, well, zip up a couple hundred feet, and I go right back down to the earth. Come on. That's me. You can get our Revelation study, chapter 4, verse 1. We went into this in detail. You know, Dave Hunt, most of you have heard, and we'll close. Dave Hunt, who is with the Lord now, I think was one of the greatest apologists that this, the church of Jesus Christ has ever seen. Some people hate him with a passion. Yeah. Because he stepped on their toes. Word of faith, this kind of thing. He's, he stepped on error. And a lot of people hated him for it. I love him. I, I think it was one of the great. He was a mentor of, of mine. Uh, not literally face to face, but through his books. But here's what Dave said about this whole subject. He said, and I quote, Being taken to heaven in the rapture has been to a large extent replaced by the rapidly growing new hope that the church is destined to take over the world and establish the kingdom of God. The focus has turned from winning souls for citizenship in heaven to political and social action aimed at cleaning up society. Scarcely a sermon is being preached about the world to come anymore. Attention is focused instead upon achieving success in this life, on this earth. If, if we have a big enough march on Washington and vote in enough uh, of our candidates into public office, then we can make this world a beautiful, safe, moral, and satif satisfying Christian place for our grandchildren. Sounds very spiritual and noble, right? He said, this is a very enticing scenario, no doubt about it. He goes on to say, the trend, this teaching, has accelerated. We could cite the current struggle going on in the Southern Baptist Church as one example. It is the largest Protestant denomination in the world, but is presently losing members at a surprising and growing rate to independent churches that deny the rapture, deny any place for national Israel in prophecy, and believe that an elite group of overcomers, quote-unquote, um, will soon manifest immortality, boom, without being raptured, without, you know, receiving their glorified bodies, a select group of people on the earth who are being called overcomers will just automatically receive immortality. will soon manifest immortality in their bodies without the resurrection or second coming and take over the world for Christ. Only then will Christ return, not to take his bride home to heaven, as the Bible clearly teaches, however, but to reign over the kingdom that has been established by her for him here on this earth. One of the leaders in this movement writes, and I'm quoting this gentleman, you can study the books about going to heaven in the so-called rapture. That turns you on. We want to study the Bible to learn how to live and to love and to bring heaven to earth, end quote. 
Uh, guys, we are seeing more and more churches adopt this theology. You see it quite a bit in the emerging church movement, but also in other churches that have embraced seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, the Roman Catholic Church, many in the Reformed churches, which are Protestant churches, and others who see the, Christ the church's mission to establish the kingdom of God on the earth so Jesus can return at one point after we get the kingdom set up. He can come back and take ownership of it. Dave Hunt ends with a very chilling statement. I want you to think about this. He said, Consequently, those who expect to meet Christ with their feet still planted on earth as opposed to getting raptured up into the air and seeing him face to face in the clouds before we go to heaven, a lot of people think, no, 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 no. We're going to be here on the earth working, establishing the kingdom. Then he's going to come, okay, take ch charge of it. Hunt said, those people who feel, who believe they're going to meet Christ on the earth with their feet still firmly planted on earth, a Christ who has arrived to take over the kingdom they have established in his name will have been badly deceived, that's true, but in fact, they could have been working to build the earthly kingdom for the Antichrist. Yet this teaching that we must take over the world and set up the kingdom of, uh, for Christ has become the fastest growing movement within the church today, end quote. So if you're looking for a Christ that's going to encourage a world government, there's coming a false Christ first before the true Christ comes to establish the true kingdom of God in the earth. His name will be the Antichrist. Well, I thought you said, though, that the church won't see the Antichrist. Yeah, the true church. There's a lot of people going to church that aren't saved who have embraced this theology. I mean, there's people that embrace different teachings. Some of them so-called Christian teachings. They consider themselves Christians that are not saved. They think they are. My wife and I just watched a documentary Friday night about Heaven's Gate cult. The Heaven's, remember the Heaven's Gate cult, Marshall Applewhite was the leader. He called himself the second coming of Christ. They quoted the Bible. And they believed that behind the Hale-Bopp comet there was a spaceship. Now, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be humorous. But it's nothing to laugh at. But they believed that the Hale-Bopp comet was coming in behind the comet there was a spaceship that was going to come and they were going to rendezvous with to take them back to the mother world. And so they had to uh, release themselves from their earthly bodies, which were, you know, holding them back. So on a given night, they all drank poison and all died uh, together. There's a group, I think 38, 39 people. You, can't, you cannot challenge their sincerity. You're willing to die for something you believe in. That's a commitment, right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, what? Is the way of death. We have to know God's word, and we have to know it really well in these last days of deception. Apostasy has come into the church as the Bible predicted it would. And the only way... The only way to counteract heresy in the church is to study God's word verse by verse. The whole counsel of God. 
because then you have everything, right? Remember, and we'll close with this. Remember Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, verse 48. He said, it is an evil servant that says in his heart, her heart, my master is delaying his coming. Why would a servant say that? I don't know. There's many reasons why. But can I tell you that one of the reasons could very well be they claim the master is, my master is delaying his coming until we can establish God's kingdom on the earth. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do that. We're going to establish God's kingdom upon the earth through our political action. That's interesting because, again, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 2? Uh, excuse me, verse, chapter 3, verse 20. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that the word citizenship there in verse 20 is a Greek word. We get our English word politics from. Our politics are in heaven. That's the kingdom we are to be loyal to. I love America. I consider myself a patriot. I love this country. But my lo loyalty is not to America above the kingdom of God. That's my politics. It's in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, he's the leader I'm looking for. He's the king who will bring a new kingdom to the earth, right? And I'm looking for his return, as I know you are too. And you know what? That's not evil. It's good. 1 John 3, 2, everyone who has this hope within them, the hope of Jesus' return, purifies himself, even as Jesus Christ is pure. It keeps us holy to keep our eyes looking for the return of Christ, which I believe could happen at any moment as the rapture is imminent, could happen at any moment, which means I want to constantly be watching. I want to be ready so when I hear the trumpet go off and the angels shout and all of a sudden I'm instantly standing in the presence of my Savior, I'm not going to be ashamed at his appearing because I'm living every day as if today he could come. I'm not saying my master delays his coming. I'm saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly because it could happen at any moment. So we'll stop there. God willing, we will pick it up next Sunday because there's a lot here that we ought to know. And uh, we will continue next week. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. And we ask that you keep giving grace as we study it, Lord, to bring out of it the important things you've put here for our learning. It's all important, but Lord... Give us grace to feed on it, understand it, apply it, and by your grace, live it in our daily lives. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.